This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. All right, so it's 2016, and obviously we just had a big election. And I know as like a, you know, a citizen, one of the things that I did was that I started to put like donations on recurring payments. So like organizations that I supported would continue to, you know, get revenue. And that's just like one of the things that I felt like I, I had to do. And I know that a lot of people started to get engaged in different ways uh, during that time. Obviously, the largest engagement we saw was the Women's March, uh, which took place the day after the inauguration. Did we, did you, were there any things that motivated you during that time? Or how did you kind of, did anything change for you with that election? It's a good question. First, I think, you know, as I try to remember the experiences from that time period, you realize why historians prefer primary like documents from the time as opposed to people's memories, because it is. It's oh, hard they're to, like, terrible. Kind of, yeah, it's hard to kind of remember everything. I mean, I think like a lot of people, the 2016 election was at the very least disappointing. I don't, I don't know if I want to say shocking or not, because I can't remember where I was. But like, I feel like now I would not be shocked if the same thing happened again but i definitely did pick up you know political activities and you know in retrospect i too wonder like you know why was i not doing more than i was doing beforehand right and like what yeah. what does it take and and it kind of just reminds me of like who's really you know feels threatened by a system right i think a lot of people felt threatened by the incoming administration in 2016. We've had other episodes on how, you know, particularly immigrant students, students of color, oftentimes, you know, uh, felt like they, especially young students, really had a need to express this in classrooms and talk about it because they would hear their parents talking about he's going, you know, the, this new president, Trump, is going to deport all of us, right? Because there's this very, oh, yeah, we've you know, anti-immigrant perspective. And so it's kind of like, you know, as the privilege of a, a white middle-aged man, like, you know, it just reminds really me middle-aged at this point yeah? oh gosh i don't i think i yeah i think middle-aged both times i don't know <laughs> oh, man. but it makes me think you know what i mean about like was i doing enough then am i doing enough now and do i get comfortable because there's still people who feel very threatened in this country and that ha- does hasn't changed right like so it's kind of like who who really is threatened by you know the events that are happening but i certainly got more active i think like you i did and i i also suspect i put some things on recurring payment try to put my my money where my mouth was. It was, I, I was very excited to do it. I was like, oh, this is, yeah, it was a, a good feeling. Yeah. And the key is, are you, are you still making those payments and, and, you know, what are those organizations doing? Um, I know, I know that I, I've tried to do that, but I think, you know, this kind of reminds me too, I feel like sometimes our, our social studies curriculum just did not prepare us for the 2016 election for, you know, the xenophobia for a lot of the sexism that was present. It's funny because some of that stuff is in history, but we tend to just kind of move past it. Yeah. And I I feel like we don't update enough, right? Like, for example, I mean, how can you understand like things like contemporary issues without understanding contemporary notions of 
feminism, right? Like intersectional feminism and the roots of intersectional feminism. And I remember when I first learned about the, the Kambahi River Collective statement, right? Which is, was put together by black feminists and really addressed how like the civil rights movement and feminist movements were not addressing their needs, right? They're this more vulnerable group, multiple parts of their identities were, you know, subjected to oppression um, in various yeah. forms. And where in the school curriculum do we help students to wrestle with this stuff, right? Like, how do we update to be ready for the challenges of today? And I feel like that was an issue at the 2016 Women's March, right? It was this kind of attempt to make it intersectional, but also critiques that it didn't, you know, meet those standards. Mm -hmm. I hope that we have someone who can talk to us today about this very issue. Yeah. And I would maybe somebody who even like knows how teachers have made sense of the last five years. My goodness. Wait a second. Are you, are you serious? Wait, we have, okay, hold on. So this is very hold, exciting. Hold the phones, hold the phones, hold the phones. is that what they say? Wait, so we have a, a really great guest who not only has done some research on this, but has actually been on the podcast before, which is super exciting. It is Kaylee M. Stevens. Kaylee M. Stevens, how are you doing? What is going on? And tell Hi. us about yourself. Hi, <laughs> I'm Kaylee M. Stevens, and it's nice to meet you. Well, or see you again, this is my second time on the podcast. I really enjoyed your intro. I was laughing so much. <laughs> yes, I have written an article called Five Years Later that was about the very topic you all are discussing. Um, I was lucky enough to follow around a bunch of feminist teachers in 2014-2015 and look at their practices, their advocacy for students, their curriculum, and really get to know how they're doing this. And then this major event happened the 2016 election. And beyond that, the emergence, the Me Too movement was around for a while, but the sort of popularity and rise of the Me Too movement. So I was actually talking to one of my participants and they said, since 2016, things have changed for me. How? They said, I now have this fire that's motivating me to really think about my curriculum differently, think about my advocacy differently, both personally and professionally. And things have changed for me. And so I got to thinking, I wonder if things have changed for all my participants. Mm -hmm. So um, I was lucky enough that they all took me back and um, I got to follow them around for another year and see in the 2018-2019 school year how things were different post-2016. And they were in, in many different cases. So that's what the article is about. So we can't wait to get into your article with you. Um, that sounds kind of awesome. I particularly like the part where she said that she felt fire. I think it's really cool. And we can talk about that bit later. Katniss but do you mind Everdeen. telling, just like Katniss, do you mind telling us a, a little bit to remind folks uh, who you are in case they haven't tuned into episode 77 of Vision of Education? Dan, what was the title of that episode? It was Approaches to Teaching Race in the Social Studies Classroom. Definitely check it out. But tell, who is Kayleen M. Stevens? I was a social studies teacher for 14 years at Framingham High School, and I was the department chair for three years there. And I was a feminist social studies teacher. And I really just loved teaching, and I love teaching social studies in particular because I felt like this classroom is so right to talk about issues of sexism, racism, classism, heteronormative culture, all sort of the other ills that affect our society and look at the historical roots of oppression and then 
have students sort of envision a different future without those oppressive roots. So think about how we got to where we are today and how we can fight against those social injustices. And this is really hard work. And I, a lot of my colleagues and I took on a lot of student teachers also wanted to do this work, but didn't know how. They wanted practical ways. They want to be anti-racist teachers. They want to be gender equitable teachers. They want to have these hard conversations. But how? Where do you begin? Especially even today in our current climate, it can, it can be scary to be a history teacher sometimes. So I went back to school at BU and started the doc program there and started studying gender equitable teachers, people who were doing it even better than me and race conscious teachers. I worked with Chris Martell as his research assistant. So we spent about a decade following around these types of teachers, observing them, interviewing them, watching their students and collecting their classroom artifacts and really getting to know what they did that made their classrooms gender equitable spaces or race conscious teaching or teaching for justice. Uh, and that's where we, our, our book, Teaching for Justice, Centering Student Studies of the Past and Activism, where that came from, that, that book, Teaching for Justice, a bunch of different teachers that we've studied. It's almost like all these models teachers into one. And each chapter of the book follows a different teacher, like a US2 teacher or an elementary school teacher or a, a rural, a freshman world teacher start to finish their school year. And what does justice teaching really look like? So to get better at that, I went to BU and I know no, BU couldn't get rid of me. So I started adjuncting there. And then I finally, three years ago, went over to be a, a full-time a faculty there. And I'm the program director for the social studies department at Boston University, which is just a great gig. Mm-hmm. I get to work with student teachers and uh, I get to think about what courses we offer in our program and I get to do research and, and do all the things I love. So I'm really grateful. And you get to hang out with Ibram X. Kendi, right? Yeah, <laughs> I am a faculty affiliate for the Anti-Racist Research Center, which is like my cool, <laughs> which is my cool guy that I, people are like, oh, how much? I haven't actually met Dr. Kendi. I think that's partly due to the pandemic and partly because he's a superstar and um, is everywhere. But I am a faculty. We had to apply to be faculty affiliates. So basically, when Dr. Kendi's doing research, we get to hear about it first, and uh, they sponsor some of our research, which is cool. And for people who don't know who Ibram X. Kendi is, uh, first, his books are probably getting banned from your local schools because they mention uh, America's history of racism. And so he has his most famous first book was Stamped from the Beginning, which is a history of racist ideas in the United States. It's tremendous. If you're a social studies person, you absolutely have to read it. It's, it was transformative, really helped me see uh, a framing of history that was very different than I had. And then the the young adult version that Jason Reynolds helped to do is like incredible. Some of the lines in it are the, are the most eloquent and powerful ways I've ever heard someone describe thinking about race. But then he also wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist and has followed up in some of that work. So if you don't know, you can stop by and see Ibram X. Kendi and Kayleen Stevens at the same universe. One uh, stop. One bird, two stones. How's it go? <laughs> <laughs> We're just across combat. So you told us already a little bit about this study. So yeah, we'd like to hear the context about this. So again, it's the study was published in TRSE. So congratulations on that publication. And this mm-hmm. was with you and Dr. Martel, who was on the previous time with you. And it's titled Five Years Later, How the, U- the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election and the Me Too Movement Impacted Feminist Social Studies Teachers. So tell us about the project. So I just felt like 
so fortunate that I had this data from 2014 to 2015, and then this major event happened. And then I got to see how these teachers reacted to the 2006 election in the emergence of a widespread Me Too movement. And the teachers really did change. Their political and personal beliefs changed. Their activism, both inside their school and outside their school, changed. I had six participants. They were individual case studies. And it was really surprising to see how five of the six teachers wanted to be more agents of change. In the first article we wrote, we talked about the difference between liberal feminist teachers and critical feminist teachers, which quite simply put, liberal feminist teachers still care very much about gender equity. They include women in the curriculum more. They think about feminism. They talk about feminism in the classroom. But critical feminist teachers were actually examining the systems of oppression and encouraging their students to be agents of change to undo those, those, those oppressive structures. And we saw differences in them. And all the teachers, well, five of the six teachers became much, much more critical post-2016 election. And they really did a lot of work whether it was going to marches or, or donating like you all in their private lives, but they also in the classroom made changes. For example, one of our participants, he actually started teaching lessons about consent and rape um, in, his, in his classroom, which is really an impressive thing because prior to this, there wasn't much curriculum on sexual assault that wasn't done by health classes. Other teachers talked a little bit about, talked more about the birth of the Me Too movement and actually put it in the curriculum. They, a lot of the, stu- a lot of the teacher talked about thinking about gender in a, in a non-binary context, thinking more about trans rights and not thinking so much about just this binary male and female gender and thinking about how to include that. But what I thought was so interesting about your intro was you spoke of the criticism of the feminist movement with a lack of intersectionality. And in the article, we talked a lot about how white women have often co-opted the ideas of black scholars and have often taken credit for gains in feminism and sexism, and then just had blind spots for the other social identities that might exist or the other societal ills that might exist besides sexism. And what was so interesting, what we found is that you have these these amazing teachers that are talked about by their department chairs and their principal and their students identified as being students that fight for women's rights and are feminists, but still a lot of them had blind slits for actual intersectionality and teaching about race and class and within sexism or thinking about how to combat heteronormative culture, which I think is, is is really interesting that even the best and the brightest are still struggling to do intersectionality well. And that, it's it's not that surprising too, because again, I think like you've said, a lot of our curriculum really at first ignored this, right? Like, so not only a lot of social studies teachers coming through school didn't get experience in, within school. And so then they're maybe having to learn other places, I think. And we, we've had reference before um, the book, Never Caught, that is by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. We had an episode with her on that talks about Ona Judge's life. And part of that is talking about the fear that Black women had in, you know, in, in early American history about sexual assault and rape. And that was a real fear, but it's just 
absent in the curriculum, right? These places where we should have had to address the, you know, both racism, sexism, misogyny, and sexual assault were, are just kind of taken out. And so I think a lot of people haven't had to deal with those realities, especially if they have privilege in different aspects of their identities. So I'm kind of not surprised and have seen it, but I'm, I'm glad that at least people are starting to recognize the way these things have both been ignored, but then also the the movements have been co-opted. So what else did you learn from working and learning from these teachers? Well, what's interesting is that the research shows not only are women underrepresented, but that they're misrepresented. And because women in social studies and women represented curriculum is so borderline non-existent or sparse, that there was a now nodding to say a nod and stir approach where it's like, oh, as long as we just include women, that's okay. So throw Abigail Adams in here, or, you know, Susan B. Anthony, and we're good, we've covered it. And you're not adding the complex and nuanced ways in which women have added and resisted and fought, let alone the different social identities that exist within the feminist movement. And there is so much of this absent from the curriculum. One of the parts in the article that one of the participants was talking about is this idea of we're still teaching gender in a very binary way. And actually the idea of gender as male and female only as this binary was brought over by the Puritans from Europe, but that's not in history textbooks, right? This idea of historical figures being free from their gender and not acknowledging, not saying I'm male or female is totally absent from the curriculum. And what teachers have to do in order to include these voices, whether it's non-able-bodied folk or non-binary folk, or just thinking of social identities in a much larger spectrum, it's just not there. So they have to do so much work with trying to find these stories and trying to find this curriculum, which is part of the reason I wanted to write the article. And I also am really concerned with teachers' voices and in having those teachers be heard. And, you know, I spoke about five of the six participants feeling that they were more invested and that they had a fire, as you said, as you spoke, to really be more active in the classroom and talk about sexism on the forefront and change their curriculum and sort of reach out to their students in more ways and connect the past and the present and really make sexism, structural sexism prevalent in, in more lessons. But there was one participant, her pseudonym Ashley, who actually was the most critical in the 2014-2015 study that actually felt completely demoralized. She reported being less likely to talk about gender issues, to talk about systematic sexism. She even had this incident in her classroom where her, her students who were in high school were talking about female students sending nude pictures. And the male students were like, that's her fault. That's her fault that she's exposed. And that's classic blaming the victim, right? You know, she wore a skirt, short skirt, so she deserved this treatment. And she said under normal circumstances prior to the election, she would have stopped class. She would have talked about blaming the victim. She would have had a whole lesson on sexism and how women have been treated a certain way. But she said she felt like, what's the point? Like, no one listens to me. And we have a leader in office at this current time that provides license to say these things. And she felt like some of her white male students were really taking advantage of that license and saying much more sexist things. And she felt pretty demoralized. And I think 
even though her story isn't necessarily what we want to hear, right? We want to hear that a major event moves us forward in our thinking. It's an important share story to share because those who are most marginalized and traumatized can't always do this work, that we really need allies to think about how to do equity work. And I think in our current climate, right, that has become more important than ever. I also wonder, right, the support across the school and among colleagues at the school has to be integral, right? Because if you're on an island and you feel like you are the other one, I'm sure it's a lot easier to just feel like you're not able to make a difference, right? That, that putting all this energy in isn't going to result in anything meaningful if no one else is alongside with you. Is that, did you notice that with your participants? And also for the ones who had positive, right? Did they have supports and other people coming along with them to do this work? Yeah, having allies is key and also having a community that you can reach out to because intersectionality and thinking about students' social identities and race, class, and gender are not as prevalent curriculum as they should be. It's a lot of work to rewrite your curriculum and not necessarily use the traditional history textbook. So you need help, right? You need help to rewrite the curriculum. You need help to advocate for these curricular changes, you need help to say, hey, I really want to have an advisory with, with a bunch of male students and teach lessons about race and consent and sexual assault. And I may get parent phone calls, but I think that teaching consent explicitly is really important and I want to do it. And have administration says, yes, go ahead, we'll back you. I will find time in the day where you can teach 20 boys about what consent is, makes a huge difference. Because I have heard the other stuff, which is my principal told me not to speak on this or my administration doesn't want us to go there. And that can be demoralizing. One of the things you talked about earlier was that when teachers found, like teachers who are, you know, they're trying to do the work and then they realize they have blind spots. What was, like, did you talk to them about like what that was like and then how they tried to course correct? And course correct might not be the best frame, but like, you know, how they tried to like educate themselves to do better in that. I mean, this is a cliche answer, but I do think we need a more diverse teaching staff. So one of our participants who used who taught from an interse intersectional lens was biracial. He was our only biracial participant. So I do think that it's really easy about half our participants were white women, right? It's really easy for white women to have blind spots about race and about other areas. It's very easy for cisgendered people not to think outside their gender identity. So I think actually having a diverse teaching staff and then diverse collaborators, writing different histories, getting different narratives. And if you can't physically get, get more people who have different viewpoints, different ide ideas, different social identities, then at least as historians, as social studies teachers, Find those documents, find those voices, find those sources from people whose voices are different than yours. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of windows and mirrors for your students, right? And this idea that we really want the curriculum to be a window for many students to see other cultures, but also a mirror so they feel reflected and seen. There's a quote in the article that one of the participants had run into one of her students of color and she said, I just, this is the first time in your class, I like history. She, they were not in school. And she said, why? And she said, I finally see myself in the curriculum. 
Yeah, that's such an important concept. I know a lot of people in teacher education, particularly librarians, uh, literacy folks have taken up that idea of, of windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors by Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. But I even think when we had Debbie Reese on in episode 67, talk about American Indians and children's literature, she also talked about curtains, right? That indigenous communities sometimes keep knowledges to themselves, which is just another example of what feminism I think can look like from different intersectional identities and perspectives, right? That, That it requires really learning and understanding, you know, things and it requires the work over time that just, you know, that's something that I didn't know until I, you know, learned it from, from Dr. Reese. Yeah. So what else, what else did you learn from these teachers that can help us understand for those who are trying to persist and persevere in, in becoming, you know, feminist teachers that work towards racial and, and gender equity? So the way we coded the data for the first round, and then a little bit for the second set of data was in terms of curriculum, pedagogy, and advocacy. So if you're thinking of, hey, I want a gender equitable classroom, or I just want a more equitable classroom in general, think of those three buckets as a great starting point. So what does my curriculum look like? How are marginalized people represented? Are they represented in nuanced and complex ways? So at the end of every lesson as a teacher, take a little notepad and say, whose voices did I privilege today? What was included? Have a community of scholars and co-teachers that you work with that review each other's curriculum, keep us in check for our blind thoughts when it comes to intersectionality. Pedagogy. So we can represent women in the curriculum, but also the way we treat women, uh, non-binary trans folks in our classrooms is really, really important. How we make our classrooms a safe space for, for teaching, teaching all students, just in our schools a safe place for, for students. We really watched these feminist teachers make sure that women were not just passive receivers. There's a socialization that's happened with women for a very long time that, you know, the idea of like, sit here and look pretty, right? So we noticed that you can, as a teacher, say, hey, my friend across the hall, can you come in during your prep and count the number of times I call on female students, non-binary students, male students, and just see if I'm, I'm giving enough airtime to everyone. Those kinds of things are really, really important. Making sure that people's voices aren't being talked over and for representing, using students' pronouns that they're comfortable with, making sure your bathrooms are a safe place and you have gender-neutral bathrooms. So there's, there's all sorts of things that within the classroom environment and your teaching tools. And then advocacy. So the next step is really about making sure that you are fighting back in all sorts of ways, big and small. So are you making sure that your students feel represented? I mean, some of these students and teachers started feminist clubs called the F word. Some of them looked at the, like advocated to have gender neutral bathrooms with the students. So the advocacy is really, really important. Some of them went to the Women's March and, and rallied students who wanted to go. So there was that kind of work be, being done. Uh, we also had students, like beyond just gender equitable stuff, we had we saw some of these teachers organize Black Lives Matters protests at their school or ask for equity audits with how often you're disciplining what types of kids and what groups of kids. So there's all sorts of ways. But so those are sort of like three concrete things you can do. Is my curriculum representative? 
how is my pedagogy, how is my classroom set up to treat people equitably, and what am I doing to advocate for those who are not as privileged as me? So I think that's really helpful advice for teachers that you're providing those three specific areas. What other advice do you have for teachers who want to do better? I think it's really important to acknowledge that equity work is not easy, that it's really hard work. I mean, I studied this stuff for over a decade, and I am not an expert on gender equitable teaching and race conscious teaching. I don't know everything. And this kind of work is daily work. Right. Being an anti-racist teacher, being an equitable justice oriented teacher means you have to sort of wake up every day and think about the words you're using in your classroom, the language you are, how you're treating students, how your curriculum is represented, how you're advocating, how are you treating teaching about oppression and pushing students to think about creating a more equitable society today. And it's really, really hard work. And if it was easy, then everyone would be doing this work. But I think it can be easier if we create networks and we create models like the six teachers in this study um, and the teachers in our book on teaching for justice that, and we create allies and we work together because again, no one has all the answers, but as long as we're striving to, to make our classrooms more equitable places and more inclusive places, then, then we're working towards a common goal. I really appreciate you pointing out that, you know, we're all works in progress on this and it can be a little scary and we're not experts, right? I mean, I have to, I I do my best to teach about many of these issues, right? Teach about how we address racism and sexism, but I have a ton to learn myself, right? And I also am privileged in those aspects of my identities in my everyday life. And so, but I can't like cower from it and not do the work because then that's problematic. So I think uh, there's a vulnerability with all of this that I think you really hit on. And I appreciate the way you approach this. And it really is important work. So thank you for joining us and telling us all about it. I had so much fun. You two are a riot. <laughs> I really enjoyed myself. So it was great. And I'm like, there's no questions that are too small. So if you are a teacher out there who's new or just starting out, or maybe who's been there a long time and you have questions about, gender equitable teaching, teaching for justice, race conscious teaching, like, please, I will get back to you. I promise. I will email you back. I will send you resources. And if you have stuff to send me, you're like, ooh, can we, for example, like in the study, we don't talk too much about ableism. I would love to learn more about that. So if you have resources on that, send them my way. Because the idea with equity is it's, it's so large and there are so, so many blind spots that we can all have. So I appreciate that. So I guess my my thing is reach out. Well, thank you so much, Kayleen M. Stevens, for for chatting with us today. We definitely appreciate you being here and being thank so you. welcoming. <laughs> thank you for always using my middle initial. When you, I know. When you that's how I roll. <laughs> I love it. It feels like a Harry S. Truman situation or something. Is it just the M or does it actually have a word that goes with it? Because Harry S. Truman was just the S. Yeah, Harry Estrude was just the S. No, I'm I'm Kimi May Stevens. My daughter's Madeline May. My mom's Marilyn May. So M A E. Yeah. That <laughs> is much cut, better. You include all, you're not yeah. going to include all this. Are you? Yeah. Oh, oh, yes, we're including all this, and that is much <laughs> better than than the Harry S. Truman piece of random <laughs> trivia that all social studies teachers seem to know for who knows what reason. But thank you so much. So, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I did. So you can just email me at kayleens at bu.edu. A quick Google search will find you to the social studies program page at Boston University where I'm the social studies director. Yeah, and that's where you can find me. We'll get that directly on the show notes. 
I mean, I am on Twitter at Kayleen M. Stevens. Hey, see. I have a conspiracy theory that Michael created your Twitter handle. (laughs) Michael, did you create my Twitter account? I did. That's true. Well, I'll go ahead and follow. Can I follow the podcast on Twitter? I'll do that. Oh, we yeah, can. They, yes, you can also subscribe to Vision of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five star review, we will read it on the air. And That's we would true. like to especially thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Zach Texas Seitz. for his editing skills. Because although you won't hear it, we required a lot of editing for this episode. Not Kayleen, Michael, and I. Sorry, Kayleen, you endured a lot. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Big Steve. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. I get a little <laughs> bit embarrassed because it's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Reference, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference, but it's, I don't know why. I just get more and more embarrassed about it. <laughs> I really like we're the book. We're going to keep it's that great. in. Just, just so you get a little sample of what happened tonight. <laughs> oh, perfect. Perfect.